0: how do i know what i think until i see what i say the green notebook carried by military leaders around the world within those pages are sweat tears triumphs and the hard-won lessons of life lessons worth sharing each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here. And every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, the first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee. And Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Don Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee... They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the notebook of Charles Feldman. Charles is the founder and owner of Insight Coaching and the author of The Thin Book of Trust. If you haven't read this book, I encourage you to pick it up. It's less than 100 pages, and it's one of those books that will change the way you do business. For me, The Thin Book of Trust completely altered the way I think about trust and gave me the tools to increase trust in the organizations in which I serve. In this interview, Charles is going to share his definition of trust, why it's so important to have in organizations, and the four assessment domains of trust. And when he gets into the four domains, it's going to change your belief system. He's going to explain why his domains free us from the limiting belief that trust is all or nothing. And I can't think of a better episode and a better guest to finish out 2021 with. So please welcome to the show, Charles Feltman. Hey, Joe, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. I'm looking forward to this conversation too. And it's funny, a couple of weeks ago, my wife reached out to me. I was traveling and she said, hey, I just heard this guy on Brene Brown and I think he'd be perfect for the podcast. And I immediately listened to the episode on Spotify and then started trying to figure out a way to get you on because the, the topic you wrote about, the book you wrote, The Thin Book of Trust is such an important topic for military leaders.
1: Well, thank you, and I'm glad you uh, you thought so. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm actually very interested to, to hear some of your thoughts and have some conversation about this as well. In what ways is it valuable and important? Do you think for military leadership? But glad to share also my thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, that'll be great. So let's let's just start by your definition of trust.
1: So my definition, and it actually, in a sense, it's a definition of trusting, trusting someone. So when we trust someone. We are making what we value something we value vulnerable to that other person's actions. And we're doing that because, A, we think that they will take care of what is valuable to us. They won't harm what's valuable to us. But also we do it because when we trust someone and they trust us, we can do something that neither one of us could do alone. We can work together and be able to accomplish what we can't do by ourselves. So the definition then is making something I value, or if it's you, it's something you value, vulnerable to that other person's actions. And part of that is that we make a a risk assessment around that what's the risk of making this vulnerable? And on the other side of that risk, of course, is that I distrust. I'm assessing that whatever it is I value is not safe with this person in this situation or in any situation. And so I'm making a risk assessment of some kind about that. And so that's part of the definition of leads into how do we make that risk assessment? What, what are we doing when we say, I trust you in terms of for the sake of why for what reasons um, am I making that assessment? What are my criteria?
0: Well, I think too, why I thought this was so important is, you know, when I look at all the military organizations I've been in and what we're asking people to do and, you know, what we're asking people to do next to the left and to the right of us, like the foundation of all that is trust. And so I, I've been in organizations where the level of trust was high, people could trust each other to carry the mail, to complete the task. And I've also been on ones where micromanagement has reigned supreme because there was a, a lack of trust there. So like, what have you seen, you know, cause that, that's one of the things that, that you've done over the years is as study organization. So what's the difference from your vantage point of organizations where trust is part of the culture Versus ones where it's more of a culture of distrust.
1: Well, yeah, when trust is part of the culture, you do see people talking to each other, being able to communicate clearly, being able to have difficult conversations, being able to disagree and still move forward. It's an incubator for innovation. If people trust each other, they feel free and comfortable to share their ideas with each other without fear of of being, I don't know, ridiculed, being put down, of having their ideas stolen, um, various things. So these are all things, of course, that we value that we're making vulnerable to those other people. So those are some of the things that, um, in my mind, identify organizations where trust is strong, where there is a culture of trust. There's also a kind of a level of camaraderie that uh, is, makes being with each other at work in those organizations, fun and exciting and challenging that's all at the same time. And also things get done faster. I mean, I, there's a, Stephen Covey wrote a book he titled The Speed of Trust, in which he essentially says <laughs> things go faster. It's a, it's a lubricant. So things can move faster in a, an organization where there's trust and you don't have to go back and deal all the time. So interactions are part of a larger whole as opposed to everything being an, indif- an individual transaction between you and me in order for us to get forward. So, um, yeah, that, that's sort of what I see in organizations where there is a strong culture of trust. On the other hand, organizations where there's distrust, there's pretty much the opposite. Things don't get done or it takes a long time for things to get done. There's a, a lot of kind of suspicion of each other. There's a lot of time spent defending, each person defending themselves. Because when I distrust someone, when I'm saying, it, it you know, it's not safe to share what I value here or make what I value vulnerable to other people, I'm going to defend that. I'm going to defend myself against um, what I perceive as uh, attacks. Whether they're intentional or not, and so there's a whole lot of energy spent there, and that just doesn't happen, doesn't get spent in organizations where there is trust. And uh, one of the other things that uh, um, I see again, you know, when there is trust, there's a sense of camaraderie. When there is not trust, there's this sense of kind of loneliness. Frankly, people don't connect with each other in in a meaningful way. And so I think there's a lot of loneliness and despair, frankly. There's also resentment and resignation.
0: I've been in organizations like that before where The environment was so competitive that you just couldn't trust that, you know, everybody had your back as you were going forward. And then you're right, like it it did feel kind of lonely. And I think a lot of times we think that, you know, the perfect organization is one where everybody's high-fiving, fist bumping, patting each other on the back, saying great jobs. But you said in your description of organizations where there's a high level of trust, like people can have tough conversations with each other. And then grow and move past that. And so, you know, I I was thinking it back to the leaders that I've worked for, who I've trusted, and ones who I didn't trust. And when they, the ones I didn't trust, try to give me feedback on something, like I I recognize that I wasn't receptive to them because there was a one of the domains of your definition, which we'll get into in a minute, missing in that. But when I trusted the person, I was way more receptive to the feedback. And I don't know, like I didn't take it as personal as I did with the person I didn't trust.
1: Yes. And that's another piece that's really valuable in any kind of organization is the capacity to give and receive feedback. And if you don't trust the person who is giving you feedback, or conversely, you don't trust that the person you're going to give feedback to is going to take it well, then that feedback doesn't happen. But without that feedback, how are people going to know that they need to change something, that they need to do something different in order to make us allow us all to work better together? So having trust allows for honest, open feedback. Feedback is, by the way, it's not dumping all of your bad assessments on somebody else. It's uh, giving them input, behavioral input into what they are doing that may be holding us all back in some large or small way and what they maybe could do differently that would allow for better interactions, better outcomes. So when there's trust, as you just said, that kind of feedback can happen and the whole organization can grow and change and learn.
0: Yeah, I had a boss one time and he used to always say that feedback is a gift. And for me, like that's all I've ever wanted to do was, was to do the best job that I could for the person I was working for. And so I, I always felt like either the, the positive or the negative feedback I was getting would kind of help vector me in the direction that I needed to be moving for the organization. So you're right, like feedback isn't just dumping all the, all the bad stuff. It's also trusting that that person's being sincere and, you know, shooting you straight with the good stuff too. Not just saying, hey, Charles, this is a great interview right now. And then secretly being like, this is terrible. Um, <laughs> and so, which is, is a great interview, Charles. I'm giving you feedback. <laughs> but, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> and so, so I just think that's so important. But, you know, you're talking about behaviors. But um, in your book, which I, I mentioned in the intro to this episode, The Thin Book of Trust, you also talk about things that happen at a physiological level when we trust and distrust people. Could you talk a little bit about those as well? Sure.
1: So I've um, actually, it was really only as I was starting to do some research for the book, when I wrote it back in 2008, 2000, yeah I guess it's around 2008, that I began to really look at the research that's out there. I didn't actually. I didn't even know that there was academic research that showed up in academic journals as peer-reviewed articles, and all of that stuff um, until I started doing this, and um, that just opened up a whole new world of data and input that I could use, and particularly the research that is done by neuroscientists that has been fascinating for me and there's been a lot of a lot of really valuable and interesting input from that quarter in the last 10 12 15 years just to summarize it i guess it would be to say that we our brains and our nervous systems have two different networks related to trust one of those networks Um, I call the trust network has certain brain structures and certain hormones and and neurotransmitters that get used to experience and use trust or build trust, if you will, and, and use it. And there's also a distrust network that uses mostly different, but some shared brain structures and some shared neurotransmitters and hormones. So the interesting thing to me is these two systems can be used simultaneously in our, in our physiology, our neurophysiology. So they show up at the same time or can. And the part of building trust with someone else and for someone else to build trust with me is to calm the distrust network down. And by the way, when I say calm it down, I'm really, the distrust network is pretty much the same, I think. Again, reading the the, uh, literature, scientific literature on this, pretty much the same as the fight-flight-freeze network, if you will. Calming that down Enough so that I can engage the trust network. Quite honestly, it's slower. (laughs) The distrust network works much more quickly. But being able to sort of have ways that I can slow that network down, take a pause, and allow the trust network to get engaged so that I can at least then make a, a realistic determination or risk assessment can I trust this person? Can I trust them? Well, we'll talk about this maybe in a minute when we talk about the four assessment domains of trust, but do I need to write them off totally? Or can I trust them in some ways and not others? And how do I manage that relationship if that's the case?
0: And so you just, you just previewed it. And that was a great segue. Like We prepared this ahead of time. I feel like in the military, you know, we say trust, and then we automatically equate that to integrity. And so if somebody was to say to me, like, Joe, I, I don't trust you, I automatically get triggered and I'm like, wait, you're questioning my integrity, which is why I think that your book, The Thin Book of Trust and, and this conversation is so important because you break trust down into four domains where I feel like now I can actually have a conversation with somebody that's not just attacking their their integrity. We can actually focus on the area where I'm struggling with distrust or Likewise, like with me, somebody can have a conversation with me. and can actually give me something actionable to work on. So what are the four assessment domains of trust that you write about?
1: Yeah, thank you. So going back to that, um, when we trust someone, we're risking making something we value vulnerable to their actions and we make that risk assessment. I see us making that risk assessment in four different sort of domains of assessment, if you will. The first one I talk about is the assessment domain of care, which is essentially you have my interests in mind as well as your own when you make decisions and take action. You intend good for me. You're looking after my best interests. Fundamental to me, I think that's that's probably the most fun, fundamental of the four domains, assessment domains of trust in that if I believe you actually do have my best interest. You have my back. I'm going to give you a lot of leeway, maybe even in some of the other domains. But we'll come back to that in a minute. And then there's the domain of sincerity, which is what you were talking about, Joe. I define that as a combination of honesty and integrity. That is, I assess that when you tell me something, I can I can take it to the bank. I can count on that. that it, to the best of your knowledge, this is true from your perspective. And so I, you know, I could count on it in that respect. And also that you act with integrity. That is your feet and your mouth are pointing in the same direction, if you will. That um, if you tell me something, you're going to act in accordance with that. And this is one where we actually can see it often In somebody else's body. I mean, I'm sure you've had the experience of listening to somebody say words and looking at their body and saying, no. (laughs) This person is not in integrity around what they're saying, at the very least, and maybe not in integrity at all. So just an example: the the um, team leader who says, Hey, you know what? I believe I'm a big believer in feedback. I think that feedback is really valuable and important. And then the first person who tries to give them feedback on the team gets cut down. That's not something in the domain of sincerity that I would trust. So I can say, yeah, I I can't trust that person's sincerity or integrity or honesty. So that's the second domain. The third one is what I call reliability, which is very simply you keep the commitments you make, the specific commitments So if you say you're going to have such and such a a report, for example, you're going to have this report done and on my desk by four o'clock on Thursday afternoon, that you'll actually do that. And if not for some reason, you'll give me as much advance warning about that as possible, and have a good reason for not being able to do that. And then we can readjust our you know, readjust the commitment that you have, if it's at all possible. But that sense of reliability that I can count on you to do the specifically deliver on your specific commitments.
0: So, I just to interrupt that one. Like I, as I was going through these, I think that one for me. For, for whatever reason, like I want people to know that I'm reliable. And so one of the things that I'll use is I will tell you like, hey, I'll have this to you by Thursday at four. And to me, like I'm so dead set on the idea of being reliable that I will kill myself in order to make that deadline to get what I promised you. And, and so I, I just uh, like that's something that I, I do with myself to, to, to keep, keep progress going is if I say it out loud, then I'm going to follow through and I will lose sleep at night, Charles, if I'm like realizing that I'm approaching a deadline and like I can't deliver. And so when I was reading your chapter on reliability, which we'll get into in a minute, there were so many things there. It's really hitting home with me.
1: Yes. And so let me just comment on that. What happens for you when you make commitments and at some point those commitments are stacked so deep that you can't, you actually cannot, even if you were awake 24 hours a day for the next five days, that you couldn't get
0: through all of them. I collapse at work. And that's for another podcast on another day (laughs) 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 that we could, we could talk about like my issues, my commitment issues, but I'm not being interviewed, Charles, you are. So let's just go ahead and move on to the fourth (laughs) domain.
1: (laughs) And the reason I ask that question is because I see it so often in organizations where people are overcommitted. And so their reliability suffers because they are overcommitted. And there there can be multiple reasons why they're overcommitted. One is they have a hard time saying no. One is that they make offers that they really shouldn't be making. They don't renegotiate their commitments, they just hold on to them and then they fail to keep them. And so then they feel bad about themselves. But I see this is a constant issue in organizations. And so if that happens, and I'm the one who's on the receiving end of your commitment and you don't deliver, once, okay, twice, eh, I'm beginning to be a little suspicious. By the third time, I'm beginning to distrust you and your ability to deliver on your commitments. And there is when things start to break down. So, yeah, um, thank you for
0: playing along with me a little bit there. No, Charles, I just want to go ahead and just move on to the fourth one because you're making me really uncomfortable right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, the fourth one is is competence. And we, we assess the other person's competence as one of the areas that we, you know, assess their, their trustworthiness. Does that person have the expertise, the knowledge, the experience, um, you know, the the resources even to do what we're asking them to do and or to do what they're saying they can do. So that person's on the team and their role is to provide input about, I don't know, what's going on in this area of intelligence or whatever. And they don't really know how to do that. That's going to be a, a cause for distrust, and it's going to create some breakdowns in the team. But quite often, in fact, probably 80 or 90% of the time, distrust is created when there are not shared standards for um, competence. So when you and I, we're not working off the same uh, book of standards. And so the fix there quite often is for You and I to have a conversation about what are the standards of competence here and be very specific about that so that, you know, if, if you're the boss and I'm reporting to you, I know what you expect and will judge as competent or if you and I are colleagues and we're working together on something You're not gonna be trying to micromanage my part of it because you feel like I'm not able to do it. What are your standards? That's an important one too. So those are these four domains that we're talking about.
0: I'd like to ask you real quick too, because, um, and and I I have questions on all the domains, but you were talking about reliability and you're talking about competence. And one of the things that I see a lot is that in organizations, when we find a competent person, we just continue to pile on that person. You know every every task that we have because we trust them and ultimately we start running the risk of affecting their reliability domain do you see that a lot where you're at as well
1: oh yeah in the organizations i work in the people i work with that does happen a lot the manager the leader uh, has five direct reports and or six direct reports and one of them is a superstar in that person's mind And they're the person who will lose sleep in order to meet their commitment. So I can I know that too. I know those these things about them. So whenever I have anything to do that's important to me, I will pile it on that person. And that's a huge mistake on the part of the leader. The leader needs to be able to have the conversations with the other people and that report to her or to him that will change. The, the story there that will change those other people's ability to deliver, whether it's no matter what it is, but understanding what the barriers are for them to deliver at the level to, with the level of competence that I'm looking for. One of the values of having these four different trust domains is trust is no longer this just big on off switch. The trust actually is something that is based in behavior. And not a moral deficiency, and so if it's based in behavior, and we can identify the behavior, we can look at the trust domain that um, you know, the domain that we're having some concern about, and then what's the behavior, or what are the behaviors that would allow us to trust this person? We can two things. We can. For one thing, we might be able to trust them in the other domains and continue to have some kind of a relationship, useful relationship with them. And at the same time, build some kind of boundaries that protect us for in the domain that they are not able to be trustworthy in for now. And then also to be able to have productive conversations with them that can change that, that can allow us to rebuild or build strong trust?
0: You know, as I look at across all the domains, I would say like the one I feel like is probably the squishiest of them all is the care domain. And I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with in the military, because I feel like by the nature of our job is very, is very action focused. It's, you know, we're, we're going to war, we're, we're doing the thing where, you know, we're, we're required to go out and kill the enemy. And so like care is a little bit it's squishy and a lot of folks want to show they care, but I guess they kind of like wrestle with how to do that. If you really care, like like what are some demonstrable actions that actually back that up? Or is there?
1: <laughs> yeah, is yes, there? So that's, a, that's an important question. And I think one of them is listening, really listening to another person, not listening Long enough for me to be able to interject my ideas and my story, but really listening to their story, listening to who they are and what's important to them, and being able to recognize that and 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 show back up with it at at various times. So, I mean, even something simple as as I, I you know listen to you and I hear that something is really important to you is to be reliable, is to meet your commitments, remembering that, and maybe even saying periodically, "Hey, Joe." I know that it's really important for you to meet your commitments, and it's and you're doing that, and I really appreciate that. That's one way of of showing care. You you get that I've listened to you. You you get that I've understood who you are, and out of that you develop a sense of of care. And there are probably there are other ways, and that's one of the things I'm curious about. I think you know in the, in the middle of a firefight, you better damn well believe the other people around you in your platoon or whatever has your back. And how do you get there? How do you get to the point where you really know they, they have your back? You know, part of it is that you know each other's stories. And that comes from listening to each other. It comes from being honest with each other. So the other domains of trust are all kind of show up and play there. That comes from the other people following through on what they say. So those are all actions that, in a sense, come to this point where I can assess that you care about me. You have my interests in mind. In an organization, most of the organizations I work with, one of the areas that's always kind of a place where care, the sense of care can be damaged, has to do with raises, bonuses, giving that sort of stuff out. Another one is feedback, when it comes time to give someone a review there should be no surprises if i really care about you i should have been saying all along joe there's something that you know i want you to do differently and in order to you know be a, a, an important and useful player here you need to do xyz or whatever it is so having those sometimes challenging sometimes courageous conversations with you shows you that i care about you I mean, that's how it is with yeah, me. I yeah, know.
0: like like you go back to, you talk about trust in teams and and being able to have those tough conversations because you care about somebody. And a lot of times I think we trick ourselves into saying, well, like I don't want to tell Charles the truth because I like Charles and I don't want to upset him. And so you're tricking yourself into thinking that this is about Charles when it's really not. It's about your discomfort with telling Charles that like he's not, he's not cutting it right now. Or he's getting too personal with his questions and making me feel uncomfortable.
1: Um. <laughs> yes, but you, you've really hit the the nail on the head with regard to that. So there's this difference that I hear a lot lately. I mean, people talk about the difference between nice and kind. And being nice drives us to, you know, kind of treat people with all kind of gentleness and um In the domain of feedback, it leads to that kind of feedback where, oh, I'm going to tell you something that's good. And then I'm going to deliver the message that I really want to deliver, which is that there's something difficult here, you know, problematic or, you know, and then I'm going to finish with something good. And all along, you know, you're going to not even hear the things that I'm saying that are good because you know that there's something that's that I really want to say. And that's what you're going to focus on. So even that is a, an indication. And I find I never trusted that when a manager did that with me. And I find that people in general distrust they get it (laughs) they get it that you're like trying to be nice to them and instead being kind in other words delivering your message in a way that respects the other person and takes care that you're letting them know you have their back that you're concerned about them and at the same time puts the message across is how you another way of how you build that sense of care
0: I love that you use that example because it's like, hey, you're really great on our flag football team. I think you're the worst soldier that I've ever worked with, but your uniform looks great. Like that goes nowhere um, with people. And, and I've even felt like sometimes when I've, I've asked for feedback on something that, that I have gotten those. I guess it's like the Oreo or whatever, like yes, you know, the, the, the two chocolate pieces with, with like the real meat of the discussion right in the middle.
1: Yeah, and that persists. I was just talking to a client the other day about feedback and how she does, how she gives feedback, and it's the same. It's the same thing. And so, it's somewhere during our coaching we're going to have to have a conversation about that.
0: And I think too, if I know that you're going to have honest, like, if I know that you're going to come to me and say, Joe, this is where you're messed up at in this area, in this area, I feel like when you do come to me and say, Hey, Joe, like, I really appreciate how reliable you're acting in this organization or your reliability i know you're serious like i think that i kind of take that as you know if, if you're giving me the negative feedback i can also trust that when you come to me with positive stuff that you really mean it and you're not just you know like blowing smoke because i know that you're shooting me straight for me personally like in the indicator of you having those tough conversations with me and me knowing that you really care is is an indicator that when I am doing well, that you're being honest when you tell me I am.
1: Exactly. And part of that is that when I come to you with either one of those, either it's a, an area of improvement, or it's something that I th- think you're doing really well, that I'm coming with a sense of care. I care about and want the best for you. Even to the point where I've, I've known people, leaders who have, fired someone and maintained that sense of care, that someone, the person they're firing, leaves with a sense that this guy actually cared about me. Even though he was firing me, he cared about, you know, my my success, my well being, and conveyed that in the conversation that we just had. And that's not so something I,
0: that comes in the the final conversation with firing somebody. Like that's no. something that you build all along the way through those feedback sessions, correct?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It should never be. It should never, ever be a surprise that the conversation that is had in the annual review or the quarterly review or however often you do that should never be a surprise. Anything that comes up in those conversations. And if you fire someone that should not be a surprise to that person.
0: Hey folks, it's Joe here, and I would like to thank our newest sponsor, my alma mater, the University of North Georgia, located in Dahlonega, Georgia, home of the Mountain Phaser Ranger School. If you are looking for an education, this is the place to go. They are a top-rated senior military college, offering over 70 degrees, including critical languages, international affairs, strategic studies, and an award-winning cyber defense program. Their Corps of Cadets is an Army-only program with 24-7 leader development. They have consistently been ranked as our nation's number one Army ROTC program among senior military colleges, and this is the institution that I credit with preparing me to be an Army officer. So, if you want to learn more, go to their website at www.go.ung.edu forward slash Army One, and learn more about the University of North Georgia, the Military College of Georgia. Now, back to the episode. So the next thing I want to talk about is, uh, so that's care. So let's talk about sincerity, which which I felt like you we went back and forth with care in that as well. But one of the things that you talk about in the book is internal congruence and external congruence. And I really like how you frame that. Could you describe that?
1: Yeah. So let's talk about internal congruence first, which is really checking with myself. As I check in with myself, am I pretty much aligned internally around what I'm saying or what I want to say to someone? And am I able to and willing to follow through and act in a way that is congruent with what I'm saying. And a lot of leaders that I've worked with, a lot of people, me included, can have aspirational values or we we want to do something, but we aspire to be a certain way. But we haven't actually gotten there inside yet. We are unable to as yet actually act that way consistently. So So this podcast for
0: me is is aspirational, Charles. Like this is everything (laughs) I'm saying today is where I want to be. Uh, In reality, I fall short all the time. I just want to throw that in there while you're on the topic.
1: Well, and I think that's actually appropriate. We need to have aspirational goals for ourselves. And it's important to aspire to certain ways of being and then work to get there, which is part of that internal congruence is, okay? I aspire to be deeply emotionally honest with people, for example. This is Use something that um, I talk about a lot with my clients is being emotionally honest as well as factually honest or intellectually honest. Um, I aspire to be emotionally honest with people. Am I prepared to take the steps to do that? To really kind of check out my own emotional states and share those with people I'm in conversation with in a way that moves the conversation forward? Am I really willing to listen to somebody else's feedback? I say I want to be, but let's check it out internally. Let's have that internal congruence. And then external congruence, um, and I'm, I have to be honest, I haven't read that chapter in a while, so I'm not 100% sure what I said in the book. But what I will say now having to do with external congruence is that I do actually follow through on things. And as I said earlier, part of external congruence is that my body... And my emotions and my words are all in alignment. So when I talk to you and I say, this is whatever, this is something that I really believe in. There is that congruence and you can see it and that I follow through that as time goes by, you can see me consistently following through with it. And sometimes I, f- I may screw up and not. Um, that's part of life. And that's part of, oh, we could go into a long conversation about forgiveness, but um, one of the important things about values of forgiveness is that it allows all of us to be human and occasionally make mistakes.
0: Yeah. I like to go back to something you just said, and you were, what you wrote in the book is the same thing you just said. So you were congruent there. You talk with, you working with your clients on being emotionally, factually, and intellectually honest. I'd like to go back to that a little bit because one of the things that I've gotten into within the last year is is really putting an emphasis on reflection. You know, for the longest time I was going a thousand miles an hour, going from assignment to assignment to assignment, and just never really taking the time to reflect. So this past year, I picked up a daily habit of reflecting at the end of the day over what happened, you know, who I talked to and kind of what I was feeling. But could you kind of just explain those a little bit by what you meant by those three things and how that kind of ties into reflection.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting, that's interesting concept. And I love reflection. So um, that's something that uh, I urge my clients to do. They don't always do so, but I love that you're doing it. That's great to hear. So intellectual, actually, I was equating intellectual and, and factual, honesty um, in a sense or they they're more or less the same in my mind um, maybe not completely but when I say I'm factually honest when I claim to be factually honest I'm claiming that what I say to you you can go out and observe is true and you could ask you know ten other people and they'll all agree that that it's true or at least nine of them will and so I'm delivering I'm giving you something that I the Best of my knowledge knows true. And I may find out later that it's not, in which case I need to go back to you and tell you, oh, you know what? I found out that what I said wasn't true. You know, the, the earth, it turns out, really is round. And so there's the factual piece. But there's also, the, I guess, the intellectual piece in that I share with you how I came to the belief that I have, the stance that I have around this. So I'm not just talking, I'm not just saying this is true and believe it or not, you know, but you ought to believe it because I said it, giving you the intellectual piece of the background, the, the how I came to think this way. And then there's the emotional honesty piece. And in fact, emotions are really critical to how we interact with each other. I've, I find this more and more to be a really important piece. The mood in which I talk with another person and they talk with me has a whole lot to do with the outcome of that conversation. So being emotionally honest, first with myself. So I might have a conversation with my wife in which I'm in a mood of resentment, but I'm kind of pretending to be uh, you know, somewhere else and pretending to be calm and clear when in fact there's this resentment going on in the back of my mind and it's shadowing, It's 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 affecting what I'm saying in ways that I don't even notice. So emotional honesty is first being honest with myself. Oh, God, yeah, I'm actually, that's the mood I'm in. And I probably shouldn't even have a conversation with my wife in this mood. Um, but if I find myself in this mood, as I'm having a conversation with her, I notice, oh, yeah, I really am in a mood of, yeah, resentment. Okay, then I may need to back off and say, look, I'm, I'm, We're in this conversation and I realize I'm kind of resentful. And this is where the resentment is coming from. This is my story about the resentment. So how do you want to go forward? Do you want us to take a break or should we go forward in this conversation? I think I can shift now that I notice that I'm in a mood of resentment. Maybe I can begin to shift and come to a a mood of acceptance around this or whatever it is. So being able to shift moods as well as notice our own moods. So your question was, how does that impact reflection? So reflection is a tool for becoming more emotionally observant, as well as intellectually observant and factually observant. And it's also a way of creating intellectual and emotional agility. That is the ability to be open to you know, stand in what we believe and at the same time be open to listen to someone else and be able to at least hear where they're coming from. And then also the ability to be in a mood, recognize it and shift it if it is more useful to have this conversation or do this whatever in a different mood.
0: Yeah, I mean, that has helped me out so much in my marriage lately. And, you know, just just in work relationships is, is being honest with myself, like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm rocking 10% energy right now. Like this is not the time for me to have a really tough conversation because it's just not going to go over well. Like I'm going to not going to assume positive intent. It's just going to go down a, a bad path, which will eventually end up hurting one of those domains of trust. And so like, you know, we're talking about interacting with other people and, you know, just those importance of those relationships, especially in our organizations. So one of the things that I've noticed a lot in organizations and this, we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit to reliability is that when we ask people to do stuff or like if people start having the conversations in meeting, there's two types of request: indirect and direct request, which you talk about, but I feel like we mess these up a lot of times in meetings and then we end up people's reliability suffers because of that.
1: Yeah. So, getting to the point where you have a strong commitment to do something that you can actually follow through on starts with making a clear and complete request. And part of that is direct, direct request. So if I'm making, and I had this, this, I have this great example of it the other day where a a leader had a problem with someone on her team doing something or not doing something, failing to do something that she wanted him to do, but she didn't want to make a direct request of him. So she was actually making a request to the whole team that was aimed at him. And this was not (laughs) working. He wasn't hearing it as a request and the whole team was going, what the heck? So yeah, a direct request is... If I would like you to do something, Joe, I'd say, you know, Joe, will you please do X? Here is the time frame for that. I'd like you to complete it by X time. And here are my conditions of satisfaction. Here is how I would like it done that will allow me to be satisfied with it. So that's a direct request. So those are like the main pieces of a direct request.
0: I love that because a lot of times I'll see in meetings, people will say, hey, this is what we need to do. And then that's it. Well, actually, like there's only one person in the room that can do that. And you didn't you didn't provide those other things that you just said. And it ends up just creating so much confusion.
1: Yeah. Well, that book that, that this is what we need to do isn't even doesn't even come close to being a request. It's, <laughs> it's just a statement, right? right, right this is right. what we need to do. And so how is anybody to take that and understand it as, as a request for action? So there's a, you know, talking about is a request for action. Well, how do you get to the action? You have to make a clear, complete, direct request. Now, it doesn't mean the request has to be unkind. You know, Joe, can you please? And then the other piece of that is that the other person has the ability to respond. And there's, you know, four, essentially four responses. The first one is yes, which means, yes, I will do exactly what you asked
0: me to do. That's the only response we have in the military, Charles, is yes. So you can just go ahead and don't even worry about it. (laughs) Skip the other. Yeah.
1: What what are those? Okay. so there's there's the yes. But if you have not given me all the information I, I need in order to actually say yes, in other words, perhaps there's a squishy time frame like ASAP. That's not going to be useful for me. I'm, I'm kind of now going, OK, I've said yes to this, but I have no idea when it's actually due. So you know, as my boss giving me the request, I may, I mean can just shove it up to the top of the, the queue when in fact my boss actually you know, doesn't need it for a week and a half. So it causes all kind of pain and suffering there. So there's yes, I'll do exactly what you're asking me to do as I heard it. There is no, I'm not going to do it. That releases you to go find somebody else to do it. Usually it's a no, and this is why. There is a uh, counteroffer, which is, you know, I can't do what you're, it, given all the things that are on my plate right now, I can't deliver this by Thursday at four. It's just, is not going to work. However, you know, here's an offer or, a, you know, a counter-offer, if you will, that I could, that would allow me to get it there. Maybe you could, you could take something off my plate that's not so time sensitive or, find help for me. Or, you know, you go talk to so-and-so over there who can talk to their direct report and ask them to help me, whatever it is, which leads to some negotiation, ideally, where we come to a point where I say yes to something that is clear and we both agree on. And then the fourth one is simply what I call commit to commit, which is to say to you, Joe, I need to check in with some things. I need to find out if I'm gonna have the support available to do this in the time frame that you needed and all that stuff. So I'll get back to you by four o'clock and, and let you know what's going on here.
0: One of the things that I've seen very successful too in, in military circles is the yes, like we can accomplish this, but here's the risk to A, B, and C if I do this. And so like it's couching everything in terms of risk so I can't do this, but I'm going to assume risk here. Like, are you okay with that? If the answer is yes, then like, like, okay, like we'll do that. But you're also letting the person know that you're not going to be accomplishing the, the seven other things. They also told you that were a priority. And so it affects our reliability now because you know, we're not going to lose reliability points when they see that we didn't accomplish those other things because we communicated that up front.
1: That's a great way to talk about it actually. Now, those other seven things may, in fact, involve other people. And so part of that then is getting back to those other people. They may not have been in the room when you had this conversation about risk. And if they're not, and if you've made commitments to those other people, you need to get back to them and communicate to them that, oh, look, I've just taken on this other thing. And so the commitment I had to you, I am going to have to retract that commitment at this point and renegotiate a different date or whatever.
0: These are all so valuable. And then the last one that we talk about is competence. And this is another one where I feel like in in military circles, you know, we value looking competent all the time. And a lot of times we'll confuse competence with somebody's ability to look the part versus like what, what they actually bring to the table. And so how does, and you had a quote opening the chapter on competence that I absolutely love. I, I'll, uh,
1: yeah, if you can find it and read it, I don't think I can find it quickly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I used it this past weekend, two weekends ago. I, I write a, a weekly Sunday email that's kind of like a way for leaders to kind of go into the week reflecting on a concept. And the, uh, the topic two Sundays ago was proving versus improving ourselves And uh, you quoted a French philosopher at the opening of the chapter. It was uh, Magdalene de Souvert. I'm probably messing that up. Don't judge Charles. But is that often the desire to appear competent impedes our ability to become competent because we are more anxious to display our knowledge than to learn what we do not know. And so how does the drive to appear competent actually affect our ability to be competent in your experience? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, uh, when I was first working in the high tech industry, I'd, I'd come from um, working in a university setting, in an administration university setting. Um, I had some, some technical knowledge, enough to have gotten the job and to sort of be, you know, OK, but in a, an engineering technical company, I thought that one's technical capacity or ability or knowledge or understanding, expertise was really, 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 really important. And I was going to be judged by that and that alone most of the time, by these engineers who knew what they were doing, and uh, by other, everybody else in the company. And so um, I would kind of try to, you know, I'd, I'd hear a new term or a new idea or a concept, and I would try to figure it out, learn what it was. I'd act as if I knew it, and then try and figure out what it was. And sometimes I could, but sometimes I didn't. And when I didn't, I... Didn't ever learn what it was. Or I was having i <laughs> I'm stuck. What do I do? And a couple of times that led to some difficulties for the engineering team I was working with or whatever. And finally, the director of engineering in the company caught me in the hallway and said some, you know, something to the effect that Charles, you know, I think you're pretending to know more than you do. And interestingly, he said something like this. He also added with that. And, and I think that's actually making it harder for you to learn what you do need to know. Just ask an engineer if you don't know. The engineer will tell you far more than you ever wanted to know about that, whatever it is. And you will learn what you need to learn here. So I was getting in my own way for learning. And I was also actually creating distrust in the domain of of sincerity along the way. So, yeah, I think that's a that's absolutely important right on. If, if we are pretending to know something, then we have to keep up the pretenses and we can't ask questions. We can't go in and say, I don't know. And a big part of, of trust in the domain of competence actually comes when somebody says, I don't know, I need help.
0: That leads me into a question. And I guess it's more personal. So I'm going to an organization in seven months to take command. It's like a seven, 800 person organization. And a lot of the stuff that they'll do in that organization is stuff that I've been away from for four or five years. And one of the things that I wanna do quickly is establish credibility. So I feel like there's a tension there between you know, looking like I'm not the dumb Lieutenant Colonel taking over and being honest, like, hey, I need you to, to reteach me some of these things. So how would you recommend I approach that?
1: What you just said hey, I'm going to need some help here. I'm going to need your support. I'm going to need you to reteach me something. I've been out of this for however many years it is. A, some of it I've forgotten. B, there's probably some new stuff that's come along in those 10 or 15 years or whatever it is that I don't know at all. In order to be able to lead you well, I'm going to need your support. I'm going to need you to help me be the best leader that I can be for you, and some of it is around technical knowledge. And I would also say that most likely, as a leader, that's a whole different domain of competence than being the expert in something. Right? Again, my clients, many of them are engineering companies, and a, a superstar engineer gets, you know, gets promoted to being a leader. And they're still working off the uh, competence in engineering and they're, they suck at leadership. They haven't figured out yet that that's a whole different set of competencies, leadership. So keeping that in mind, what are the competencies of good, strong leadership that you can provide and that you do know and not getting them mixed up with the competencies of knowing the technologies, the, you know, whatever stuff, but being able to ask for support in those areas and being clear about the difference for yourself and for other people.
0: That's great advice. And I'm going to definitely chew on that. It is again, like I prep to make this leap, this personal and professional leap for myself. A question I have, I guess, is you weaved a lot of action steps throughout this, which which I think is awesome. But like, what happens if I mess up right like what happens if i do something that betrays somebody's trust like what do i do next
1: well hopefully for your sake they'll let you know they'll be direct and honest with you and they'll come and say joe i'm struggling with something that you've done in which case you know directly from them what you know, what's going on. And you you can take responsibility for it, apologize, and acknowledge. An apology is in part acknowledging your part in it, honestly and completely, and the effect it has on the other person or the other people. So communicating to them that you understand that you've harmed them in some way, or you've harmed what they're trying to do in some way. Getting back to that, they can't trust you or you can't trust someone else in the situation because they're not taking care of what's of value. So you've harmed what's of value to them in some way. Getting that across, I, I know, I get it. I understand the harm that I've done. And I apologize. And here's what I think I can do to do better going forward. And I'd like to, I need to hear from you, what would, what do you want from me in order to be able to do better going forward? So there's those two sort of sides of that. And then doing those things, of course, following through with those things. and, And also being, going back to reflection, can I, can I commit to doing those things? And if not, being honest with yourself first and honest with them. I can't do that. I can't commit to that. That's the situation where that other person is, you know, aware enough themselves to be able to come to you and, and ask, you know, tell you that they have a problem, that they're losing trust in you. If they don't do that, the best you can do is notice their behavior. And if they're behaving in ways that signal distrust, like they're withholding information, they're avoiding you, they're being short with you, they're being nice and not honest. All of those things are indications that um, they don't trust you at which case, in which case you're going to have, you're going to have to help them have a conversation with you.
0: This was such a great episode because again, you know, trust is the bedrock of what we do in the military. And a lot of times we just struggle. Like we just get angry. I don't trust you, but like, I can't articulate why. And so by us today, walking through those four domains, my hope Is it I know for me personally going forward, I'll be able to have more fruitful conversations with people about hey, this is where like I feel like I betrayed you, like in this area of trust, or this is where you betrayed me. And so let's let's work to repair that. Let's get the trust back on track. And then your book, which I'm telling you, for people listening to this, if you haven't picked up the thin book of trust, do it. It's a very short read. The entire book is very practical. And it's stuff that you could take immediately after putting down and just go be a, a better leader in your organization. So Charles, if people read it or people listen to the podcast and want to learn more about you, where can they find you and hear more about your ideas?
1: Well, my website is Insight Coaching. That's com. And you can find out more about me. You can also find out how you can get the book. You can also, you can buy the book from Amazon. Sometimes they have a weird, sometimes they'll say it's out of stock when they have hundreds of copies on their shelves. You can also get it from Thin Book Publishing, which is the publisher. You can get it directly from them. So those are a couple of ways of, of doing that. So yeah, check me out. Check out the insightcoaching.com website. And I also, I guess what I want to say before we end, One of the things that I want to get across all the time with my clients, with people I talk to about trust, is that trust is a competency. That is, it's something that can be learned, it can be improved, and it can be practiced regularly. And you have to just know what you're doing. You have to have an awareness of what builds it and what can damage it so that you can do the things that build it and avoid the things that damage it. So that's really key in this whole thing is it's a competency. It's not a moral issue. There is some moral issue to it. At some point, you have to you have to decide you want to be trustworthy with other people. Once you decide you want to be trustworthy with other people, it's all down to the behavior and knowing what behaviors build and what behaviors damage and all that stuff. So thank you for inviting me onto this podcast, Joe. I've really enjoyed talking with you and I wish you all the best in your new position. Um, that, that sounds fantastic. And it sounds like you're, you're the man to, to take it on.
0: Oh, we'll, be, um, we'll be talking. What do you do once a quarter? What, how's this counseling thing work, Charles, so we can, we can figure <laughs> out the, the right coaching?
1: Well, the coaching is, is something that's uh, a little bit more condensed then um, once a quarter, I usually have a, a six month contract or engagement with somebody and we meet every week or every other week on a regular basis. And, but anyway, you, you can find out all about that on my website. As well.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Charles. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. This was an amazing episode, amazing opportunity. And uh, I, I look forward to continuing to learn from you.
1: Thank you, Joe. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world, You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out and our Sunday reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two minute read, but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTG notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for from the green notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're gonna help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from the mud, there's dirt on my hands.